The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 23. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lysonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. And when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated, and good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. Everywhere that the gospel message goes, it seems to turn things upside down there. And today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 14 and Paul and Barnabas' time in Lystra, sharing the gospel with pagans, people who believe in other gods, gods like Zeus and Hermes, false gods. And so what do Paul and Barnabas do? They tell them about the true God, who is a living God. And we also see what difference having a living God makes in their lives and in the lives of all Christians. And so we're going to look more closely at this story of Paul and Barnabas and Lystra. And as we do, we will have three points. One, counterfeit gods. Two, the living God. Three, perseverance. Counterfeit gods the living God, and perseverance. And so let's begin with our first point, counterfeit gods. When Holly and I were in Europe this summer, we were almost arrested by the police because Holly had tried to pay with a counterfeit 50 euro bill. All right, I am exaggerating slightly. The bill actually wasn't counterfeit. It was real, but it had been so crunched up and wrinkled that I... And I think something had also spilled on it. So it didn't look quite right. It seemed counterfeit to many people that we tried to give it to. And the police were not actually calling us, 
But someone did warn Holly to stop trying to use that bill because someone else might call the police on her. Because counterfeiting is a big deal. It's a crime. It's dishonest. It's a lie. A counterfeit 50 euro bill, or as it turns out, even one that people perceive to be counterfeit, but definitely a counterfeit 50 euro bill cannot accomplish what the real thing can. It's fake. It's worthless. When Paul and Barnabas arrive in Lystra, the people mistake them for gods. Although they don't mistake them for the true God, they mistake them for counterfeit gods, for mythological gods, Zeus and Hermes. And why do they think that they are gods? Because they miraculously heal a man. In verses 8 through 10, it says that at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had the faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. They do this miracle and the people are amazed. So amazed that they think Paul and Barnabas are gods. They say in verse 11, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And in verse 12, it says they call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. You know, Zeus is the sky and thunder god in Greek mythology. He rules as king of the gods of Mount Olympus. Hermes is also a god in ancient Greek mythology. He is considered the herald of the gods. And the people at Lystra think that Barnabas and Paul are Zeus and Hermes, these mythological gods. Why? Well, as I already said, in part because they had just healed the man, but also because they were already predisposed to believe in these mythological gods. They were pagans. They were polytheistic. They practiced idolatry. They had priests and temples devoted to gods like Zeus and Hermes. Verse 13 says that the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. You know, so much of the lives of these pagan people already revolved around worshiping and serving and sacrificing to and hoping in these counterfeit gods. So when Paul and Barnabas healed the man, the simplest explanation to them was that they are some of the same gods they already worship. But of course, Paul and Barnabas are not gods. What's more, Zeus and Hermes are not gods. They're counterfeits. Paul calls them and all counterfeit gods vain things in verse 15. They are worthless gods, useless. They're counterfeit. They can't do anything. Now, we may look at these pagans in Lystra and think, that's pretty crazy how obsessed they are with all these fake gods. Can you believe they would go to Zeus's temple or offer sacrifices to Hermes and actually expect something in return? But we should be careful here because you and I and people in today's day and age aren't so different. We may be more sophisticated in hiding the fact we worship and serve counterfeit gods, but we're tempted to worship them just the same. In fact, our worship of counterfeit gods is more dangerous, I would say, because we deceive ourselves into thinking that we don't actually do it. The pagans at Lystra were well aware of which gods they were worshiping, Are you well aware of which counterfeit gods you are worshiping? 
In his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is obviously where I got the name for this point, but in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says this, a counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure or comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even your success in Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we call it codependency, but really it's idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. What counterfeit gods are you tempted to worship and sacrifice for? What do these counterfeit gods supposedly give you? Because it's actually not enough just to identify the external idol. You need to identify the idol of the heart. And I'm using idol as synonymous to counterfeit God. It's not just enough to identify the external idol. You need to identify the idol of the heart. For example, making money may be the external idol. You work and work and work and sacrifice everything for the sake of making money. But that's just external. Two people might both make as much money as they can for two completely different reasons. And that's where the idol of the heart comes in. For one person, he might accumulate as much money as he can because he wants to spend it. He wants to spend it on nice things that he can show off, a fancy car, the latest tech, expensive clothes, because he wants people to see him and perceive him in a certain way. He wants a reputation among people, approval or the attention that comes from others. Ultimately, he wants acceptance from other people. And that's what he uses his money to accomplish. And so that need for acceptance is the idol of the heart. But for another person, she might accumulate as much money as she can because she wants to save it. No one might even know just how much money she makes because she doesn't flaunt it. She hides it in savings accounts and investments because she wants the security that comes from the number on her bank statement. That's what she uses money to accomplish. And so for her, security is the idol of the heart. For one, it's acceptance. For another, it's security. Same external idol, money, different idol of the heart, acceptance or security. I mean, the permutations of external and internal idols are nearly endless. And so it's not just enough to identify your external idol. You need to dive even deeper and identify the idols of your heart. You know, what intellectual or psychological or social or cultural or spiritual need does the external idol ostensibly meet for you? That's the idol of your heart. It could be acceptance or security. It could be power or approval or comfort or control or any number of things. What are your idols of the heart? 
One final comment on counterfeit gods and idols. We all have personal counterfeit gods as individuals, but groups of people can also have corporate counterfeit gods or idols. And these can be particularly dangerous because since the whole people group is tempted toward the same idol, there are few, if any, people with the eyes to actually see these idols and call them what they are. And the people who do are often very unpopular. But entire cultures or countries can have counterfeit gods. It could be military power or technological progress or economic prosperity. It could be family or tradition or duty. It could be individual freedom or self-actualization. Even churches and congregations, just like ours, can have counterfeit gods. It could be a particular pastor could be a particular ministry, could be a particular way of doing things or a particular way of not doing things. A counterfeit God can be anything. Individuals and groups of people can have them. And it can be anything, anything so central and essential that without it, you may wonder what the point of even continuing on is. Paul and Barnabas were themselves treated as counterfeit gods. But they refused to accept the worship and sacrifice directed at them and instead pointed the people to the only one who can actually meet every single need that counterfeit gods ultimately fail to fulfill. They pointed them to the living God. And that takes us to our second point, the living God. When you call a customer service line, would you rather work your way through an automated system dialing numbers that correspond to whatever menu option? Or would you rather just talk to a real breathing person? For me, I would absolutely prefer to talk to a real person. And look, I dislike talking to strangers on the phone just as much as the next guy. And, but, if it's often, uh, but if it's gotten to the point where I'm actually needing to dial a customer service phone number, I want to talk to a real person. If I could have solved this problem by myself or just visited a website or sent an email, I would have. But if I had to pick up the phone, give me a real person because a real person can understand the nuances and details of my situation. They don't have to send me through a binary search tree of options. They can direct me exactly where the solution to my problem is. That's why talking to a real person is so much better than talking to an automated system. In our passage, Paul and Barnabas tell the crowd at Lystra that there is a real person that they can talk to instead of these counterfeit gods. And instead of worshiping and praising false gods, they can turn toward the living God. After the crowd and pagan priests make it known that they want to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, who they think are Zeus and Hermes, Paul and Barnabas tear their garments. They rip their clothes off. They're so grieved by what's happening. And they go out into the crowd and speak to them. They say in verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You should turn from these vain things to a living God. Paul and Barnabas are like, don't worship us. We're just humans like you. We're not gods. And Zeus and Hermes, who you worship as gods, they actually aren't gods at all. 
They are vain things. They're worthless idols. They're powerless. But we bring you good news. You can turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Verses 16 and 17 go on. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. A living God makes all the difference. A living God actually creates. He made everything. He made you. A living God also has a will. He acts. He allows nations to walk in their own ways for a time. He reveals himself in various ways. He gives you rain and fruitful seasons, which satisfy your hearts with food and gladness. A living God is a God you can actually have a relationship. You can know him, and he can know you. He can speak to you, and you can speak to him. So don't settle for dead gods or false gods or counterfeit gods. Turn away from these vain things and turn toward the living God, Yahweh, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. What difference does it make to you that God is a living God? What difference does that make? You know, one interesting thing that Paul says about this living God is uh, what I just read from verses 16 and 17. This living God allowed the pagan nations to walk in their own ways for a time. He's more explicitly revealing himself to them now through Paul and Barnabas, but for a time, he allowed them to walk in their own ways. But Paul says, God did not leave himself without a witness. Rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and the accompanying satisfaction of heart with food and gladness were God's witnesses. Which is kind of interesting, right? A living God is witnessed to even by the creation. Have you ever thought about that? All of creation points to a living God. Romans chapter 1 says something very similar. Uh, Romans 1, 19-23, a passage also comparing and contrasting counterfeit gods with the living God. Uh, it says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is a description of what theologians call general revelation. The creation is God's general revelation of himself. And that is in contrast with his special revelation, the gospel message, Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins to all who repent and believe by faith. That's special revelation. But general revelation is the creation, the created order, the things that have been made. It testifies to God in such a way that, as Paul writes in Romans, everyone is without excuse. There is enough evidence for and witnessing to the living God and the creation itself that no one is without excuse for not believing in the living God. All will be held accountable. And yet, 
general revelation is not enough for salvation. It doesn't proclaim what special revelation does, the gospel message. General revelation is enough that everyone is justly held accountable, but it's not enough to save. To be saved, people need to know and believe and assent to more. They need to know about Jesus, the ultimate manifestation of the living God. Jesus is the author of life who we tried to kill, but he didn't stay dead. That's how much life characterizes God. When we tried to kill God, he came back to life again. That's how much life characterizes Jesus. He is alive and will always be alive. And it doesn't just make himself alive. He also gives life. He's the giver of life, as we sang earlier. He made you alive in the first place, and when you died spiritually, he made you alive again. And his spirit is within you, helping you to die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness, which is true life, eternal life. He's the living God. So for the first time or one more time, turn away from vain things to the living God. Turn away from false gods to the true God. Turn away from created things to your creator. Now, it seems like some of the pagans did just that. Although it may have taken a little while for them to figure out that they should not make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, but it does seem like some of the pagans did that. But when Jewish leaders heard that Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel at Lystra, they tried to stop them. They went there and tried to stop them from preaching the gospel, but they failed. And that takes us to our final point, perseverance. The Vuelta España is going on right now, cycling's final world tour of the season, and uh, it's about three weeks long. There are 21 stages, and riders are making their way around the country of Spain. They do get one rest day every week, a Sabbath, if you will. But other than that, they wake up each and every day and race somewhere around 100 miles. I mean, can you imagine that? 100 miles a day for 21 days. And to some degree, the Volta España and all the grand tours, they can become races of attrition. I mean, obviously, many people finish the race, and whoever gets the best time is the winner, but Finishing the tour, it just in and of itself, even if you're in last place, just finishing the tour is a huge accomplishment in and of itself because there are so many things that could force someone to quit early. They could have a bad crash. They could get sick, test positive for COVID. They could fail to finish a stage within the time limit or mentally they might just decide they don't have what it takes to go on. There are so many things that could cause someone to fail to persevere to the end. And when the race begins, they already know that they will face many difficulties before they make it to the end. The question is never, will they face difficulties? They will. The question is, will they persevere in the face of inevitable difficulties and make it to the end? When the Jewish leaders heard that Paul and Barnabas were witnessing in Lystra, they tried to stop him. Verse 19 says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They stoned him, just like they stoned Stephen. And everyone thought that he was dead, and so they dragged him out of the city and left him there to die. 
but he was not dead. Verse 20 says, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. He survived the stoning and eventually he got up and went back into the city. And then the next day, they continued on to the next city on their mission trip, Derby. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I had just been an inch from death, I would have taken some time off, maybe even quit. But I definitely would not have returned to the city I was just stoned in and then continued on the very next day. But that's what Paul and Barnabas do. They just keep on keeping on with their mission. Verse 21 says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They go to Derby, preach the gospel, make many disciples. Then they return to Lystra again, where they had just stoned Paul, and then to Iconium and Antioch, where the Jews who had stoned him came from. I mean, apparently Paul and Barnabas aren't afraid of anything. And that courage probably gives them tremendous footing to do the work of their ministry Verses 22 through 23 say that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. From city to city they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, appointing elders, praying, fasting, and committing those who believed to the Lord. Essentially, we see that Paul perseveres through persecution and he encourages all the disciples and believers he speaks to to persevere. And the kind of key phrase to that end is in verse 22. Apparently a part of his strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, Paul makes it a point to say that it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Of God. Now, what does that phrase mean? And how does it strengthen souls and encourage perseverance? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, first of all, what does it not mean? It does not mean that we earn our salvation by works. It's not like entrance into the kingdom of God depends on us working hard to persevere through tribulations. That would be salvation by works. But as we all know, And what Paul repeats time and time again, salvation is by grace through faith. And so Paul can't mean anything like salvation by works when he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So what does he mean? Well, entering the kingdom of God means the end, the last day, the second coming, when Jesus and his kingdom fully come. Between now and then, there will be many tribulations we suffer through. It's just a statement of fact, really. Jesus had to bear a cross before he wore a crown, and we should expect that in some sense we will follow in his footsteps. We will go through hard and difficult things before the end. And you need to know that. You need to embrace that. You need to prepare yourself for that. Paul's words are true for you, too. It is through tribulation that you will enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Between now and your death, you will experience tribulation. I can't say for sure what any of it will be, but you will. You will experience difficulty. Could be a friend or a family member who leaves the faith 
or stops living in step with the gospel. You know, you thought that this person would always be there with you, pursuing the same Christ-centered ends, but one day they stop. Could be difficult circumstances, unexpected sickness, a death of a loved one, conflict with a friend or a family member, job loss, depression, anxiety. Could be a pandemic or pastoral changes, which if you're here, you're already persevering through. Could be future unknown difficulty just for being a Christian in America. You know, it's already the case that Christians worldwide have to put up with varying levels of persecution, but what will make it difficult for us in America is that we've had it easy for so long. And so while it may never reach the point of violence like it has elsewhere, even smaller stuff will feel really significant because of the shift that it represents. Being overlooked for jobs or promotions because you're a Christian. Loss of political influence. Not being welcome in the public discourse. Neighbors or potential social circles leaving you out. Negative portrayal in TV and movies. Don't be surprised if churches and ministries eventually lose their nonprofit status and tax benefits that go with it. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared to need to persevere? Paul's words and acts will be true for us. It is through tribulation that you will enter the kingdom of God. So what can we do? Probably a lot more than I have time to say here, but the most important thing is to look to Jesus. We have a living God, not a counterfeit God, not a dead God, not a false God. We have Jesus, the true God, a living God. And Jesus is well acquainted with difficulty. He's familiar with persecution. Whatever we face in this life, he's faced that and more. And so he sympathizes. He knows what it's like. But even when he faced the most difficult persecution of all, falsely accused and found guilty and sentenced to death on a cross, what did he do? He persevered. Even as he cried out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, is there another way, Father? And heard back, no. What did he do? He persevered. He carried his cross to the top of that hill. They nailed him to it. He endured it. He stayed up there. He was God. He could have at any moment said the word and completely changed the circumstances, but instead he stayed. He persevered. Why? He persevered for you. It was the only way for him to get you to stay on the cross, to persevere to the end. You know, there's a saying that if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. Have you heard that? Like Facebook You don't pay for Facebook because Facebook isn't really the product. You are the product, you and your data. Well, you could say something similar about your gods. If there's no sacrifice, then you are the sacrifice. All of our false gods, all of our dead gods, all of our counterfeit gods, they don't sacrifice for us. We sacrifice for them. And of course, we may think we're sacrificing other things to these gods, but at the end of the day, we're actually sacrificing ourselves. Counterfeit gods don't die for you. You die for them. But that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus is a God who dies for you. He's the sacrifice you aren't. He sacrifices so that he can get you, so that he can have you. A counterfeit God would never do that. But a living God can, and he did. 
And so when you're struggling to persevere, look to Jesus. Look at him persevering. Look at him persevering so that he could have you. When you're facing some difficulty or persecution or whatever that requires perseverance, remember these words from Jesus in John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. I have overcome the world. When you face difficult circumstances, when you face tribulation, remember Jesus and take heart. He has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you that you are a living God. You're a God that we can relate to. You're a God that loves us. Father, we confess that we are tempted to turn to counterfeit gods, to place our hope in them rather than in you. But awaken us to the truth that you are the only true God. Help us to look to Jesus more and more and his perseverance on our behalf. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, so that we may trust you and love you more. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.